everyone, welcome back to another episode of Stories of Us. I'm your host, Drew Penrody, and I'm so excited that you're here with us today because we have a very special guest, Yash Kadati. He's a great young scientist and got the amazing opportunity to work at NASA's Lyndon B. Johnson Space Center last summer. He is also a filmmaker, YouTuber, and one of the founders of Studio W. So I guess the main thing I know about you is that you're a huge science enthusiast and you also got this really cool opportunity to work at NASA. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So um, I, I love science. I love robotics. I, I really love learning about the world. Like that's my, that's my favorite thing. I've always wanted to work for NASA or other space agencies. Um, I really love the idea of going to space, you know, making your mark, uh, seeing what there is in the universe. If, if that makes any sense, and kind of finding out where we came from, where we can go. I, I really loved uh, watching Star Wars as a kid, other sci-fi movies. I love, I love sci-fi video games. It really captures my imagination. So I actually started on the NASA thread in middle school. I was working on a project uh, on active radiation shielding. You know what? I'll actually explain how I got interested in this, because it's very interesting how I got explained. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've always loved space and stuff, but um, I'm also, if you know me well, you know that I am a huge fan of the video game Halo. And okay. in Halo, Halo is a, Halo is a first person shooter, uh, science fiction, military shooter. It's set in the, uh, 2500s. Uh, so very futuristic. We're a spacefaring race, you know, fighting against aliens, all that stuff. I love it so much. Um, and something that really, really interested me was the idea that, you know, the character that you play as, the Master Chief or the Spartans, they have these energy shields in their suits, which can basically like deflect bullets and like plasma rounds and all that kind of stuff. So I was very interested. I was like, I'm going to be the first middle schooler to build a force field. I just want to build some kind of force field. I, I don't even know what it would do. I just want to build some kind of force field. So I looked it up. I was like, what's going on in the world of force field? And initially I was thinking along the lines of Halo, you know, something that could stop bullets or something like that. Obviously, we don't have the technology like that uh, right now. But uh, what I did find on the Wikipedia page for Force Field, and it was like something like applications in the real world, I found there was research being done on using magnetic shielding systems to stop uh, radiation in space, deflecting that type of plasma. And that piqued my interest so quickly. I was like, man, I would love to work on that. So I got very interested in that. So for my middle school science fair project, I was in eighth grade. I was like 13 or 14, something like that. Uh, I basically wanted to create a magnetic shield um, that would uh, measure the amount of radiation coming in and then power an electromagnetic shield uh, that would protect, from the, protect astronauts from radiation. Um, so I started working on this project and I realized that after my, uh, my local fair, my project wasn't as, I guess, developed I guess that's the right word. It wasn't as developed as it could be. So what I did was, I was like, you know what? This is a relatively new area, right? There's not a ton of research being, that had been done at the time. This was like 2016, 2017. Now it's really Especially rare Especially for stuff. force fields, yeah. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So um, what I did was, I'm just going to contact some people, a bunch of people across the country. Emailed a bunch of people, uh, Georgia Tech, uh, and then I was like, okay, I'm sure the Georgia Tech people will respond. You know, uh, we, we're both in Atlanta. Uh, we love research and stuff. And they were doing something exactly along the lines. And he's like, you know what? Uh, just in case they don't respond, I'm going to write to NASA and SpaceX. I'm sure they don't have time for me, random <laughs> teenager kid. And then, so I sent out those emails. 
radio silence for a week. I was like, okay, no one's responding. And I was, I was like, oh my God. I mean, I didn't expect much to happen, but I was a little bit sad. I was like, hopefully someone yeah. will And then just out of nowhere, I get an email in my inbox from a radiation engineer at NASA who would later become my mentor and one of the people that I knew really know really well. And he was like, hey, uh, you have such a knowledge about this field at the age of 14. I would love to get on Hangouts call with you sometime later this week if you're free. And I was like, oh my God. Oh my God. I was, I was like, no, that's so hard. So I get on this call with him. I'm very like scared. Cause I'm like, what is this random PhD guy doing with this 14 year old? Like he definitely has better things to do than to talk to me. Right. So I was yeah. very intimidated at first, but finally I worked up enough courage. I got on the call. I told him what I was doing. I bounced some ideas off of him. He told me what was going on because he's one of the people working on Orion, which is the spacecraft, which will help us take us to the moon on the space launch system. So he's the radiation, he's like the main radiation guy for Orion. So he's like, these are the current uh, options we have right now. What we're really working on right now is passive shielding, which is basically in the event of a uh, radiation burst or something like that, we're just gonna be putting like bags in strategic places to kind of block out the radiation. But then I was like, this isn't enough, right? And he's like, yes, this isn't enough right now. So we're working on technologies and active shielding. So that's using like a magnetic field or an electrostatic shield. So I continue to build that relationship. I continue to work with him over the next year. Eighth grade became ninth grade, ninth grade became 10th grade. I ended up finishing that project on magnetic shielding in eighth grade. I entered into the Broadcom Master Science Fair, I ended up doing very well, did some really fun simulations and stuff. And then fast forward to, I guess about maybe a year and a half ago. So 2018, he was like, hey, we're, we're starting this new project. Um, we're, we're still having some people work on the active shielding side of things, but I, I just brought this up and I, this is a new project that we're working on. We'd, I'd want to see if you're interested in something like this. And the idea is basically using machine learning to analyze features on the sun to predict these events before they happen, kind of the same way that we have oh. weather forecasting for thunderstorms. Mm -hmm. It's a new area called space weather forecasting. So... Uh, yeah. They've been doing research on it for some time, but um, this was like, I guess, the first time in their office specifically, uh, they were starting research on it. So they were working with other. So then I was like, okay, this is interesting. So I started just kind of in my free time. I have an hour on the weekends. I'll just do some research, maybe write up some code, um, just download some magnetograms, see what it's like. And at this point, I was very, I was very interested. I was like, hey, maybe there's a possibility. It's definitely like less than a 1% chance possibility. Maybe I was like, in my wildest dreams, I go to Texas this summer and I work in his office, in his lab. And I was like, there's no way this is going to happen. Right. So finally one day, this is a February 2019, I, I kind of dodged, I, I got on a call with him. I kind of dodged the question for a little bit because I'm too scared to ask him directly, hey, can I work with you? And then I'm finally like, Hey, is there any way that I can work at Johnson this year with you? It would, it would totally change my world. It would be such an awesome experience. And there was the longest pause I had ever heard on the call. And I was like, oh my God, what is going to happen? And then he was like, well, I, I don't know because you're a high schooler. We've never had a high schooler before. And man, I was so sad when he said that. I mean, I, I had gotten rejected like based on like my age in the past when I try to talk to professors and things like that. But this hit hard because I thought, 
dang, I really, this is something I was really invested in. Uh, and I, and I keep continuing to send him updates on like the small, I'm, I'm like, I'm like maybe spending an hour and a week like doing research, like updating code, blah, 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 blah. And then out of nowhere, middle of March, I get an email from him. He says, we might be able to open a spot for you this summer. And I was, I was out of my world, like so happy. Uh, I wanted, I just wanted to jump around the room and yeah. uh, cry almost, but yeah. um, it was an awesome experience. So then I, but then within two months, packed up my bags, flew to Texas, I did my thing. It was the best three months of my life. <laughs> wow, that's that's amazing. And like, I can definitely relate being mm. a part like this entire science field of that feeling of like constantly getting rejected, especially because of your age, because they've never had high school students in their labs. Exactly. Um, for me, it was definitely more of like, rather than space and stuff, it was more focused on biology and genetic engineering. So I'm in iGEM at my school. So that's like the International Genetic Engineering Machine. And you probably heard of it before. Yeah. Initially, in my sophomore year, I was also going to be applying to GHP. Actually, the story behind that is I think our parents actually met. <laughs> and then, yeah, like my mom was to your dad. I was like, oh, where does your son go? And then he's like, Westminster. He's like, oh, do you know Jonas? And then yeah. that's like, so we kind of, we, we never actually met, but like we kind of did. And yeah. I also got rejected that year. Um, it wasn't for science. It was for like literature and communicative arts. That's but interesting. I was like very devastated about that. And that summer, <laughs> literally, I was sending emails to like maybe like 30, 40 number of professors, both at Georgia Tech and at Emory, to get yeah. into molecular biology labs because I just wanted the experience. And yeah. it wasn't until like I overheard one of my friends saying like, oh, I got into this lab and I decided to like just email her professor because we need to like actually get high school students in. But it's like yeah. very difficult as high schoolers to get it is, opportunities. It is very difficult. I, I can I can totally relate. The summer uh, freshman year going to sophomore year, I wasn't sixteen, but um, like I I literally went to the Georgia Tech Aerospace Department. Mm-hmm. And I literally just copy pasted every single email of every single professor there. And I'm looking back on it now, but like I emailed literally every single person. And even after I met some professors, they were all very nice people, by the way. But the bottom line was, I wasn't 16. So right. I couldn't get into those labs. It would be a liability issue. And those are very understandable reasons. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that makes sense. But it, I, I totally understand, uh, understand that grind and that sometimes the pain. Yeah. And also, yeah, speaking on behalf of age, I skipped a grade. So I'm like, I was born in 2004. So like, I was never able to get into any labs because I was, I didn't turn 16 until like January this year. So um, it always sucked. But I guess when you did get that opportunity to go to NASA and actually work in this lab, what was the experience like? What were some things that you learned? There were literally so many special moments, perspectives and ideas that I got to be exposed to uh, going to Texas that year. For context, I went there by myself. So I was living all alone for two and a half months. So I had some roommates, some really awesome roommates. One of them was, he's, he's a flight controller in mission control. So like, he's probably one of the people that you would hear talking during like the launches. And then my other roommate, he was an intern just working on uh, calculating the orbits we need for our 2024 moon mission. So amazing stuff. And then my best friends, they were all awesome. I was very close friends with. Uh, she was studying physics at U Chicago. I had another friend from Georgia State. 
So amazing people from all around the country, mostly, mostly undergrads and grads. There were a few other high school kids that I was able to meet, but they were all from the Texas area. So none really from like Georgia or anything like that. But I guess the main thing that I learned from the entire experience is that at the beginning, I really sucked at adulting, if that makes any sense. Yeah, so I had to, absolutely. I, without my parents, I, I had to learn to cook. I had to learn to bike to work three and a half miles one way in the morning and then three and a half miles on the way back. I was in charge of doing my laundry. No one would tell me to do my laundry. I would realize how badly I had planned and that I had no underwear for the week and I had to rush wash some underwear. (laughs) I had to manage my money. I had to navigate being a roommate and a colleague. So um, I, I would say that the biggest thing I learned, in addition to learning so many awesome things from my friends, was I think learning to be myself in a place where Literally, nobody knew me from my past as just a high schooler at Westminster. These were people who all knew me in the context outside of Westminster. And, and I realized once I got back just how much of a bubble I would say I'm in in terms of being a high schooler. And getting that experience of going to Texas, meeting people from all around the world, it gave me a very, I guess, a worldly uh, perspective and as I move on into college and stuff like that in the next five, ten years. And I'll have much more experience in that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I like never really had an experience like yours where I had to like live by myself and take care of myself. But definitely going back to like the iGEM place, like our competition takes place in Boston. Next Mm -hmm. year is in Paris. But guess what? Uh, That's not happening because I'm graduating. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess I never get to go to Paris. But yeah, the really cool thing is is that you kind of come together as a community and you start to realize like the different roles from like the undergraduate students to the graduate students to like the PhDs and how their research is kind of impacting like this overall bigger strive for knowledge. And it's really cool to understand like different people's perspectives and like research along with their experiences. Because I just feel like understanding that and getting to relate on that terms like helps you grow better as a scientist as well. Agreed. And when, I, when I'm here in Atlanta, all of my friends, we all talk the same. We all think the same. We all do the same thing. We're very self-selecting. I think when it comes to uh, students like you and me, we're, we're right. very selecting in that manner about who we talk to. But when I went to Texas, these are people who had completely different experiences than my own, completely right. different perspectives. And I think that having being able to listen to those stories and being able to listen to things they were interested in helps me as a scientist because now I'm able to better understand how people think, how people respond to scientific changes, and what people are looking for when they Mm -hmm. look to science for an answer. That's absolutely right. I guess going off of that one, tell me a little bit about, like, now that you're considered a colleague of all these, like, NASA scientists, like, (laughs) your perspective about, like, the SpaceX NASA launch. Oh, I cannot tell you how excited I was to see (laughs) that rocket off. Uh, on Saturday. I was watching it with my family. We were all super excited. Um, it's, I, I will say that it's very, very nice to have the U.S. get back its spot in launching people to space. I'm super proud of my colleagues and friends at NASA and SpaceX. So we're not paying the Russians anymore to take us to right. space <laughs> in, their, in their Soyuz capsule. I think space is the only thing that we agree with the Russians on. So I'm glad that we're at least able to continue international cooperation in a friendly manner. Space is probably the only thing we work in good faith with the Russians, maybe a few other things. 
But, you know, um, I'm glad that we have our American launch infrastructure because it's going to be extremely important if you see the, the plan that NASA is outlining. We're going to have boots on the moon by 2024. That is a very short amount of time. There is a lot of stuff that needs to happen between now and four years from now. Four years may seem like a long time, but when you're looking at the time scale of NASA, it, it is not that much time. So I'm glad we've set these very aggressive deadlines for ourselves. And part of that is making sure that we have the capabilities through uh, to send our astronauts to space through reusable rockets. Yeah, it's absolutely right. I guess another thing that's becoming more prominent is that space is like undeniably like getting more intertwined in policy. Um, mm -hmm. I guess the most obvious way is like Trump's declaration of having like a space yes. force. Um, what's your idea on that one? I, I won't get very political, but uh, I will say that I will say that we have gotten a lot more attention and a lot more funding our way uh, mm -hmm. with the new administration. So I think that we are getting closer to the, the funding that we would need. We've been underfunded for a long time. Ever since the end of the Apollo program, I, I personally feel we have been underfunded. In terms of the Space Force, I know it sounds kind of stupid at first, but I know people who work there now. and. It's not really, I'm going, to, I'm going to echo what Neil deGrasse Tyson has already said. I think, I think the word Space Force kind of invokes an idea that we're like shooting other people in space and things like that. And when you think about the, the science of it all, that's not really what that means. It's, it's more talking about like military satellites and things like that. So the Space Force is more concerned about those kinds of things rather than, you know, putting bombs in space and things like that. So to that extent, I think that there's a lot of misinformation about what the Space Force is all about. So it's really just a restructuring thing. There's not really much that's changing about the Space Force. And I know it sounds dumb. It's, it's just a restructuring thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. And honestly, I don't know much about it rather than it just sounded like, oh, wow, we're really trying to create an intergalactic war with other people and like <laughs> but there, I feel like there's definitely a lot more logistics and science behind mm -hmm. it that yeah. as it develops it will be more like I guess prevalent or known yeah and, and I think that's the image that's in people's minds and that's not really what it's about it's more low-key than that and I personally am not too keen on the idea of militarizing space right. but unfortunately or fortunately it's something space programs in the military have a very very close relation with each other Lockheed Martin, yes, they make some of our rockets, but they also make fighter jets. They also make military satellites. Mm -hmm. All of their aerospace contractors and def and defense contractors for a reason because they can get a lot of this. They can do a lot of the same things for both NASA and for the Air Force. So there's has always been a very close relation between space and the military, but it's not something completely new. That's just what I think people should understand. Yeah, and I guess this question, this is my next question, is like a little bit deep. Sure. But basically, I've been having like some conversations with my mom because there's literally no one else in my house about <laughs> whether um, it's like a human obligation or necessity to go colonize space because eventually like resources here are limited, like that has been known. So it, would it be necessarily morally correct to go like colonize space or is it just like an inevitable thing and it's not necessarily about morality? I think, I think there are a few different takes on this. I think the most obvious one is the corporate uh, take on this because uh, fortunately or unfortunately, our world is driven by money. There right. are asteroids out there with trillions of dollars of rare earth metals on mm -hmm. them. 
the first company to get to that rare earth metal that can undercut China on its prices, especially with how much we're using them in our phones and computers and things like that, they will be minting money basically. And then there's obviously the idea of space tourism. 20 years from now, uh, the same way that um, air travel went through a revolution a few years, like maybe 40, 50 years ago, I think within our lifetimes, we'll have a space revolution where they'll be sending people to space regardless of whether it's morally correct. So if, if it's a question of if, I think the answer is yes. Now, if it's a question of should, I have a different thought process on that. And feel free to jump in on this. But I think that um, we, we should. We, we do have, we have an obligation to go and look to the stars to see, uh, to learn more about our universe, uh, whether that's going to Mars and establishing a presence there. Um, I, I think as long as um, we will, as long as our human race will prosper, we will be, we will always have an urge to go and explore for that is the way that um, we explore places like Antarctica or other, uh, or the moon, or places like that. And I think that inevitably, uh, as you said, um, you're very correct, we will eventually be running out of resources. And unfortunately, I, I think if we do not take care of our planet, it may eventually become an inhospitable place. And obviously, with if overpopulation becomes a problem, we will need places where people can go and live. So I think that two very logical next steps would be the moon, and Mars, which is uh, where where NASA is aligned to go. So I think that we we really should go and see what's out there. Yeah, and I guess initially I morally was like, no, like for me at least, because mm -hmm. it's like, we already understand like living on earth, like the negative yeah. anthropocentric effects that we do because sometimes right. humans are just dumb and it's like we were selfish for the sake of survival and that often causes yeah. like damage of other things. Right. But I guess now as I'm coming to realize that it's like it is going to happen. It's like inevitable yep. because we are people, we're like creative creatures and we're curious. And so right. eventually that is the next frontier. It's like the last frontier for us. Right, exactly. And right. I'm thinking now it's more of like, how do we, I guess, cautiously explore space? And how do we make sure that the same anthropocentric negative effects that happen on our planet don't spill over to space and we don't destroy that frontier and i guess that is like my perspective now because now i understand it's inevitable but i think it's just about being cautious about what we're doing and i'm sure there's like a lot of people already working on that and researching but that's just like my perspective for now no i i 100 agree with you i think we do need to be careful about the ethics of what we're doing i think that the difference in our world history and in, in terms of exploring and colonization, things like that, uh, versus space exploration is, at least to our knowledge, there aren't any other living beings in our solar system. And that will mm -hmm. make a huge difference about how we approach it. If we're going to an inhospitable sub-Antarctica temperature place like Mars, mm -hmm. there's not really anybody there. So I, I don't think from a moral standpoint, it's um, unjustifiable or inhumane to be using resources over there. As far as we know, there's not living life on Mars. Yeah, right, right. So right. It's, it's, it's only, it's only uh, justified that we use those resources to our advantage. Um, mm -hmm. So that's compared against, I guess you could say, like colonization in the 1700s and things like that, where, we were taking, where uh, people were taking advantage of other people. So I think yeah. that would be the other thing 
but I, I think if you're if you're talking in relation about I guess like in terms of labor of mm-hmm. people in order to get um, other people to space, I I really don't have an answer to that. I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <I'm a> scientist. <laughs> I have, That's right. Not a, not a scientist yet, but. I guess like kind of the research or the project that kind of piqued my interest on whether colonization is ethical, because as much as I'm like, I really enjoy science, like, for example, in GHP, I did communicative arts, which is basically right. literature. Um, I'm really interested in how like science intertwines with policy. I don't right. think it happens enough. We'll definitely get into that later. But <laughs> um, I guess the project that I was working on is like this thing called genes in space. So basically they ask high school students to submit proposals on a genetic experiment that can happen in space and results actually come in tomorrow. So wish me luck. Um, Yeah. But basically my experiment that I proposed was based off of like engineering bacteria because obviously space is a definitely like a, like a different realm and the way that things work in space are really weird in comparison to areas with like 1g gravity Mm -hmm. so bacteria act really wacky they mutate a lot they just express a lot of weird stress genes and so Mm. it's kind of my proposal was about like what if we repress those stress pathways or knock them out and there's this thing called like rna interference and all that jazz but it kind of made me realize like the first organisms that we would if we were to colonize like another planet per se is bacteria. So I guess that was kind of like my thought process of like, is it ethical? And that, That's definitely a very interesting take. I, I, I have to admit, I never really considered it from that perspective. So thanks for telling me about that. I would say that we have a history of sending things to space that are not human before us. Uh, we sent um, uh, chimpanzees into space, dogs into space, some of which unfortunately uh did not survive in our very early tests in the 60s or the russians tests but we but because of those animal sacrifices we were able to increase our own technological capabilities and get to space which had given uh i guess a whole new slew of technologies that we could use to improve our own lives i i agree with you maybe maybe there are some things that we need to consider like for example this might be, I might be getting ahead of myself, but let's say we decide we want to go interstellar maybe 50 years from now. Is Mm -hmm. it ethical to send cryogenically frozen fetuses into space? Is it, is Mm -hmm. it, is it ethical to do something like that, to send these people and not give them the right to choose? We just send them to space, leaving earth forever in zero G where they might have defects or other, other sorts of strange effects that we don't, we don't know yet. So I think that's an ethical problem that we'll all have to think about as we are expanding into the future. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. Um, I guess since on the topic of Interstellar, since you are like also a filmmaker, do you have any like favorite like space movies and like... Favorite space movies? Um, I'm obviously going to say Interstellar, The Martian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love those. I really love about science. Uh, I'll say that two reasons why I do science um, is one, I want to s- learn more about the world and I want to see things that I can... Uh, make an impact. Uh, I, I want to make an impact on on the world. And then I think the second thing, which is more of the nerd in me, I want to see stuff that I see in like science fiction movies and video games. I want to see that stuff in real life. Like right. think about how cool that would be. Like just the cool factor. Like, that's just my inner nerd. So uh, <laughs> I love science science fiction movies, uh, science movies, uh, video games. I already mentioned Halo. Yeah, I mentioned. Interstellar, The Martian, uh, 2001: Space Odyssey, 
what are some other classic films that I'm forgetting? Yeah, that's a pretty good list of movies. Like, I feel like for Interstellar, I, like, watched it when I was, like, it came, I don't know when it came out, but, like, when it did, I was super confused about what the movie was, and it, like, took me reading the Wikipedia page to figure out. I was like, oh, that's what happened. They did such an amazing job. Did you know that they actually got two research papers out of Interstellar? Wait, no way, really? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about it. So what they, what they did is they, they sat down with Kip Thorne. So Kip Thorne mm-hmm. is a Nobel Prize winning physicist. He's one of the mm-hmm. brightest minds uh, of our age. And we're basically like, so, you know, in Interstellar, there's a black hole, right? Right. So it's actually a very pivotal plot point. Um, mm-hmm. And the, uh, your listeners who haven't seen it, the, uh, the effects of the black hole is that due to Einstein's theory of general relativity, the strong gravitational field produced by the black hole uh, actually slows down time in a process known as time dilation. Basically, what they did was that to Christopher Nolan, who's the director, amazing guy. I, I love mm-hmm. all of his work. He was like, I want to be able to see an actually realistic looking black hole. Like, what would it look like in real life? So they didn't start from an artist's concept or anything like that. They started, they talked to Kip Thorne uh, and a bunch of other physicists, and they actually started with the math. And what they found was that basically when they put the math into the computer, they built a whole new rendering engine for this, actually. It's amazing what they did. And they found that this black hole had this, like, this halo effect around it, uh, which, you, which you see. There's like a ring both around it, which is like the regular accretion disk, and like, uh, I guess vertically, there's a ring around it too. And it's so interesting because what that light is, that light is actually light from behind the black hole being curved around the black hole, gravitational lensing wow. uh, by the gravity into the simulated camera. So they were actually make a, able to make a contribution to the scientific community uh, wow. through filmmaking, which I thought was really awesome. That's really neat. Yeah. I never knew that. Yeah. Yeah. Fun fact. I guess talking a little bit more about like science applications in the real world, as in like there's a lot of problems in the scientific community and like some of them are on like accessibility, some of them like we discussed are in ethics. Do you want to talk a little bit about your perspective on that? Yeah, sure. So I, I definitely agree with you that accessibility, I think both in one getting people to care and two mm-hmm. getting people to understand. I think those are probably the two most defining uh, issues that the scientific community will face. And because I remember initially when I was getting into research, like 13, 14 year old me, I was looking up how to make a force field online. I found these papers and surprisingly, not surprisingly, I was super confused because I knew nothing about this. (laughs) And I was like reading this. I was like, what is a magnetic field? (laughs) So, uh, So I was like learning all of this stuff and this learning curve is extremely steep, especially people who are want to learn more about science. And that's why I really, I really respect people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, Bill mm-hmm. Nye, people who are working to communicate science in a way that is both engaging and comprehensible. And that's uh, one of the reasons why I decided to do the Breakthrough Junior Challenge um, mm-hmm. in my freshman year. And uh, the Breakthrough Junior Challenge is basically a competition that challenges uh, kids from around the country ages uh, 13 through 18 uh, to create a three-minute video about a scientific topic of their choice, explaining how it works in the most accessible way possible. Wow. And I decided to, I, I was very interested at this point uh, on the topic of the Higgs field, which is basically mm-hmm. 
I, I can give you the scientific explanation and then I can explain it to you in terms of Harry Potter. So <laughs> the scientific explanation is it's a quantum field that permeates space all of our universe. And basically as quarks and particles move through it, they gain mass. Now I'm willing to bet that 80% of the people who heard that had no idea what I just said. So <laughs> what I, what I had to do was I had to find a way to relay this extremely complicated topic in a way that anybody would understand. So uh, I remember uh, I had like this Lego Harry Potter set in my basement that no one was using. And I was like, what if I use this, uh, these Legos to communicate the ideas of the Higgs field? So basically the idea was I, I, I had a bunch of these Lego characters. I made them into a crowd. And I was like, some particles such as Draco Malfoy, a very unpopular character in the series, he goes through the field and he moves very fast because not a lot of people are crowding around him. He's not a very popular guy. So he moves very fast through the crowd, just like a photon would move very fast through the Higgs field. But then let's say Harry Potter, who's a very popular character, a lot of people start to crowd around him and slow him down as people want to talk to him. They want to find out all about his amazing adventures. So he's like a quark because he moves very slowly through the field because he interacts a lot with the crowd or the quark intellect interacts a lot with the with the field. So that's basically the analogy that I used in my video. And I guess people really liked it because I ended up being wow. a finalist in the competition. So oh, congrats. I, thank you. So, I, I mean, I really do believe that we need to make science more accessible and more comprehensible to uh, people. That's the only way we're going to get students like you or me, or even younger than me, interested mm -hmm. in science to help solve the problems like coronavirus or climate change or things like that. Yeah. That's absolutely correct. And I guess I did know about like trying to make science more accessible to students like us. And I realized the importance of like, I guess the arts, like literature and film mm -hmm. and like shows like Bill Nye, like you said, are yeah. so important. And I have so much massive respect for like those scientific communicators. And I think like we need more of them in our society as, and here is where I transition into my rant about like policy and like <laughs> the lack of accessibility. I guess like we were like relatively fortunate because we have the like you know we can reach out to labs and ask them like oh can mm -hmm. I work in your lab and like have at least like a slight opportunity to, but like I was fortunate enough to like be able to go on this like kind of service trip to the Dominican Republic and so that year our iGEM project was focusing on this disease known as helminthiasis. You probably like never heard about it. Um, it's a neglected tropical disease, but it affects like one sixth of the world's population. So that's like oh, wow. billions of people. And, it's a, and then basically like the previous year we did cholera, which is pretty well known, but that only affects about like a hundred thousand maybe people. And I'm not trying to undermine cholera. It's pretty horrifying, but I guess when I was able to actually travel to the Dominican Republic where helminthiasis is one of the leading healthcare issues, it made me realize like, even if like the scientific knowledge and the scientific products such as pharmaceuticals and like the drugs to treat this disease exist, as well as like diagnostic tests, mm -hmm. the people are not able to access it. And the main reason being is like, there is a lack of communication, communication between like the scientists and the public where the scientists don't necessarily know how their research is applying to the real world and the mm -hmm. public have really no voice to say about like, hey, we need more research in these neglected tropical diseases because mm -hmm. that is where like so many people are dying. Like that is where people are chronically tired and right. have like anemia. So they can't go to 
work or school and that's why economies are always like not doing as well in these de lesser developed nations so i guess it's kind of made me realize like science needs to do better in the sakes of like there needs to be more human practices and understanding the applicability but also policy needs to get involved so that science can actually be applicable to the real world so yeah that's my rant about that <laughs> no that's very informative yeah so I guess another really cool thing that I've learned through that experience is this like field called frugal science. So you know how like centrifuges like literally cost like thousands of dollars. Yep. There's like a whole set of like scientists who are trying to make like microscopes and um, centrifuges basically off of this yeah. like whirly gig toy and they're making it like less than $1 and like they're making it super accessible aimed at these developing nations. So I guess that is like a really, really cool thing about like how a way that we can make science more accessible. Yeah, I, I love hearing about that. And I, I think that these types of projects, they need to be uh, more talked about in our media and in our public, because these are the types of projects that need funding, especially mm -hmm. if we want to make the most impact uh, that we need. I 100% agree with you on that. Um, I guess that also leads to like follow up question is like, based on your perception, like should policy be based off of science and like you can even go about like the coronavirus discussion mm -hmm. about this and how the government should have listened earlier hand to scientists. Yeah. Um, but that's not always the case mm -hmm. on whether policy should be based. I have, I guess, a very complicated answer to this. I think that I, in, in one word, in one sentence, I think policy should be based on sound science uh, mm -hmm. because there is no limit to the number of claims you can make based on cherry pick data, based on bad science, based on poor conditions. I mean, there are so many examples of this. The very obvious one is the climate change. Um, people will claim with this cherry pick data that no, humans are not the cause of climate change, even though the overwhelming is that we are the cause of climate change. And then uh, I guess more interesting example uh, was that when obesity rates were spiking in the 70s, 80s, 90s, etc., uh, in the U.S., and they were trying to find out the the, the main debate was uh, it was was fat causing obesity or was sugar causing obesity? And sugar companies they basically paid millions of dollars to scientists to show that uh, to cherry pick their data and show that fat was actually was causing obesity. And what happened was after the U.S. Uh, DA or the U.S. government, they basically said, all right, citizens, we need to stop eating less fat. And what ended up happening was that obesity rates spiked even more after that because what they were finding out was all these low-fat, so-called low-fat snacks that people eat. What happens is when they take out the fat out of those uh, snacks and those foods, it loses a lot of the taste. So to compensate for that, they end up putting a lot more sugar into those foods. So even though they're low fat, they're high in sugar. So Americans started eating more of that based on this bad science. So um, that caused even more of an obesity epidemic in the U.S. So I, I think that we need to base policy on science, but we need to make sure that it's peer-reviewed uh, science that doesn't have corporate interests at play. Yeah, and I think that's a fair point, and that's like resembles very similar to my perspective as well. I feel like literally in this world you can find evidence for any statement and mm -hmm. like in a way there would be a scientific study that would support that mm -hmm. and i think that's one of the things that makes this field so compelling because nothing is 
like hard true for fact it's always a theory but mm -hmm. at the same time making decisions holistically um and implementing it based off of like you know a select number of studies it can also be like very damaging so like i definitely second you on that entire thing about that are there like any other projects that you are currently working on or planning on working on in the future this summer i'm working on i'm, I'm again working on a virtual internship uh with nasa so i'm continuing to work uh, on this project outside of that i also do a lot of work in robotics uh, I've, I've been on a, my high school robotics team now. I'm going into my fourth year and I'm the business and outreach lead. So we work with schools and other communities to bring things like to bring STEM workshops and other sorts of STEM programs to basically get people excited about STEM. So I'm working on that as well. Uh, I also um, lead Discovery, which is a unique, uh, I guess, program at Westminster, which is experiential learning in the outdoors. So all sorts of fun stuff there. And then my free time, I'm doing filmmaking working on my youtube channel working on videos for that and also doing a little bit of like music composition and music production on the side just for fun <laughs> yeah i'm also like kind of doing everything this summer um yeah. like pursuing like all my interests like first of all i'm doing this podcast which has been really cool and a fun experience it's like yeah, awesome. definitely got me into understanding content content creation a little mm -hmm. bit more and like wow, YouTubers' lives are actually pretty hard. <laughs> like, creating with new content is pretty difficult. But um, today, my teacher dropped off, like, basically, it's like, I don't know, it's like a bulletproof suitcase filled with lab wow. materials. <laughs> I don't know why it's in a bulletproof suitcase, but it is. <laughs> but um, we are running a couple of experiments. Basically, what we've done is, like, I've been, I was talking to you about the centrifuge, right? So a couple of members in my iGEM team have created this thing called like open cell short term it's like kind of like a centrifuge it like a bead homogenizers like sometimes you need to open up like cells hence yep. open cells so in order to break open our lysocells you have to put beads in them but again like i said those are very expensive so mm. we're trying to basically we're kind of working not with cells and like eggs yet but we're working on spinach dna so I'm in charge of running PCRs in the following weeks from that DNA. So I guess that'd be really fun. But yeah, it's really cool that even though in like this pandemic, there is like still ways that you can pursue your interests. I definitely had quite a few internships. I had an internship at GT that got canceled because oh, of the entire that. pandemic and stuff like that. But yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think that this is a great time, especially this summer to if if you're interested in science watch some videos read some papers build something right. it is takes does not take more than a few minutes to learn how to code this mm -hmm. is the time to pursue your interests and see what you like and um yeah yeah i guess going more on filmmaking because that's mm -hmm. also something you're working on this summer sure. talk to me a little bit about your youtube channel and what got you into filmmaking and i guess some experiences with that field Sure. So um, if you know me very well, you know that I, I kind of have a flair for the dramatic and kind of like interesting. And I, I've been making uh, movies with my brother for many years. Uh, I, I should probably say I forced him to be in many of my movies <laughs> for several years. <laughs> but um, I, I was very interested special effects side of things. That's what initially made me very serious about um, filmmaking in high school. 
And there's this very amazing channel that I love on YouTube, uh, Corridor Digital. Uh, they make these super like visuals driven short films. And they also post like all of these behind the scenes videos about how they did it. And that really inspired me. I, I, I really like making things like explosions or force fields or spaceships fly around or things like that. So I mean, yeah. I, I really love that spectacle. That's what, and then, and then uh, the Breakthrough Junior Challenge came around and I was like, hey, maybe I can combine my love for effects and filmmaking with my love for science and uh, mm -hmm. contribute something to the scientific community. So then I got into that. And then uh, me and Jonas uh, and a few other friends, uh, when I was a freshman, we came together and founded Studio W, um, right. where, where I uh, pursued my interest in more, I guess, traditional filmmaking. And then uh, more recently, um, I'd always had a YouTube channel. Like I posted like maybe like one or two videos from like, uh, early as a freshman, but I, this summer I was, or not this summer, but like when lockdown started, I was like, you know what? I have some time. I'll just put some um, effort into making some videos, maybe that people will like. So I, uh, I made, I made some kind of interesting videos. Like um, <laughs> I made a coronavirus uh, quarantine type beat where basically I sampled a bunch of, uh, and it sounds really dumb and it kind of is, but I, I sampled a bunch of like sounds around from my house. I sampled like a Nerf gun and I sampled like me punching a bed and I sampled like my Xbox and I basically brought together all these samples and I made a song out of it. So wow. I made like that. I did that. And then I made a gaming video. I made, I just hopped on uh, with some of my friends and made like kind of like a comedy gaming video. And then most recently I did a commentary video on the really weird stuff that's on Snapchat Discover, uh, <laughs> if any of you use Snapchat. So wow. I've just been uh, spending time uh, developing some of these more interesting passions that I didn't really have time to when there was school. Yeah, that's really cool. It's really neat. I'm going to ask you, can you make like a beat for this podcast? <laughs> a beat for this podcast? Yeah. I mean, like, so I've been using a bunch of, like, stock beats and, like, whatnot, but, like, I was, like, I actually really wanted to get into, like, music and creating and stuff. Like, I'm not, I don't know. I, I don't know how to get started, so definitely teach me. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I use, uh, for, like, for music production, I've been using GarageBand for a bit because it's free yeah. and it's on my computer, but I've also been working with some of my friends uh, using, like, FL Studio, Jaws uh, of Those Nature. Um, but it's, it's very, it's very accessible. If you have GarageBand on your computer or any mm -hmm. free software like that, GarageBand is way more powerful than people give it credit for. Like the, the song I told you about, um, I made that in GarageBand and it oh. actually ended up sounding actually pretty decent. So I'd like to say, I'd like to think. So it's very accessible and you can down, there are all these different free sample packs out there. Uh, drums, percussion, loops, all of that. So it's very, very more now more than ever. It's easy to get into the world of music production and sound effects and things like that. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. I guess shifting a little bit more towards like general and like personal questions. Um, like, tell me a meaningful experience that like changed your perspective. It could be about science, filmmaking, literally anything. A meaningful experience that changed my perspective. So um, you already know 70% of this story, but uh, I, like last year, like you, I also spent a lot of time uh, trying to prepare for GHP because that's like the thing that I wanted to do uh, that summer. I was like, dang, four weeks of paid summer camp where yeah. I get a bunch of cool projects, like this is the dream. And I was like, uh, I, and I uh, went through the school level, I did the online application. I prepared so much for my interview. I was like, 
I'm going to crush this. I walked out. I was like, dang, I really crushed that. I, I thought I did so well. Like, I'm not yeah, even kidding. me too. <laughs> and My then, interviewer and- literally was like, oh, so you wouldn't have a problem if your, like, roommate was, like, a different diversity. Like, you started talking about roommates. Yeah. Like, I thought I was getting in. And then you rejected me, so. One of my interviewers, she was literally an FRC coach. And we talked about, like, FRC for, like, 20 minutes. Wow. So I was like, no, we got this in the bag. The results came out. And I was like, that was probably the most humbling experience in my life. I was like, mm-hmm. man, I need to, and I'll be the first to admit, sometimes I can be overconfident about right. Uh, what what my capabilities are, what I think I can do. And, but then just like a few days later, I got that email from my mentor saying, hey, we might have a spot for you here at Johnson Space Center. So I guess my, my two big morals from that story are one, hope for the best and plan for the worst. I, I was like, there's no way there's, I'm getting into NASA and I'm definitely getting into GHP. And mm-hmm. very weirdly, it was the opposite. The opposite happened. I was able to get in, uh, a thing at NASA, I wasn't able to get in GHP. So plan, have 10 backup plans because you never know one of your backup plans, they might actually be getting used. And then my second moral is that if you plan things correctly, the things you least expect to happen, they will happen and they'll be even better than what you thought, what mm-hmm. you had originally planned. Because I, GHP, it's, 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 a great, it's a great program, four weeks. But then internship at NASA it's like 10 weeks in Texas, like that just blew my mind. So I, right. I wasn't even prepared to hear that, oh, you might be going to Texas this summer. So even if things seem bad, they can turn around very quickly in your favor if you plan correctly. So, and, and again, it was a humbling experience. So now I'm a little less overconfident about things. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, like, trust me, you really didn't miss anything about out about getting into GHP because I got in this year and nothing's happening, so <laughs> it <laughs> yeah. got canceled. But yeah, there is like this quote I heard somewhere about every delay is actually like a gift and a blessing. So it's like exactly. talking about like even if like you don't get into something, like it's definitely for the reason, and yes. everything will work out at the end. So like that's really good, and I genuinely believe in that as well. Um, going back into science, what's your, like, I guess, favorite type of science? I was expecting, like, a subject battle um, here, but. <laughs> well, as I said before, my two main things are I want to be able to, I love seeing things that will be seen in the future, but I guess if, if you're, if you're more uh, looking for an answer in terms of, like, what, I guess, I don't know if genre is the right word, what areas? Yeah, subjects, maybe disciplines of science, I guess. Anything where things are learning on their own or uh, anything which can be very quickly implemented that doesn't take years to do, Mm -hmm. that's what I like. But I also understand there's a lot of value in the science that takes seven years to do and a lot of impact to people as well. So don't want to dunk on any other aspects of science. I love them all. (laughs) That's a good answer. (laughs) Um, I guess with your experience at NASA and just working in this field, what are some qualities of like scientists that you have noticed? So um, I'll say that honestly, most of the people that I've met, um, they're pretty chill. That's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pretty chill. Uh, some of them like video games. A lot of them like memes, like me. Other people <laughs> hike, they run, and scientists are normal people. Like I, I think some people don't understand that. Like I think people expect that scientists are like 
these nerds who have like no social life or anything and like they only talk in like jargon and like robot language <laughs> but no i mean we have we have the exact same like personality spectrums or ranges that you would see in any other profession there are people who are super extroverted there are people who don't like to talk to a lot of people there's a lot of smart people there are a lot of people who don't know what they're talking about so <laughs> yeah yeah but i think that the two main things that I think drives the world of science is that a we want to learn about the fundamental drivers of everything in the world i i see the c-130s fly over my house all the time i live right next to an air reserve base i want to know how do those engines work how do the mm -hmm. wings work and then i think the second main thing is that we want to be able to make positive change in the world um and i think that's probably the most important aspect because i don't think that you can ever make a meaningful scientific contribution if it's not going to end up servicing uh, someone in some way and that can be in a wide variety of forms but uh, I think that that's something that we need to focus on as a scientific community what kind of technological developments can we make that'll actually help people like you were talking about in the Dominican Republic mm -hmm. uh, and the diseases that were going on over there we need to be focusing on that maybe more yeah yeah and I guess I've had like maybe a slightly different experience with the scientists I've met, but that's probably because I haven't met quite a wide variety, <laughs> but mostly the ones in genetic engineering labs and are completely focused. But the summer that I so didn't get to GHP, I got into an Emory lab research internship basically. And the professor I worked there, he was like this middle-aged Japanese man, super cute. He would have this like <laughs> whenever he like, got something to work like a transformation or something but it made me realize that although yes there are some scientists who are super extroverted at mm -hmm. the same time the people who kind of whose lives kind of re revolve around like working in labs especially mm -hmm. biology labs the only thing that they really do is like look at their shoelaces the entire day <laughs> and like maybe look at their partner's shoelaces but <laughs> I learned so much things, so many things about molecular biology, and I like my skills have become so much better from that experience. But at the mm -hmm. same time, I wasn't like, oh, this, it made me realize, like, this is not what I want to do in the future, as in, like, <laughs> work in a lab and yeah. look at my shoelaces all day, basically. Um, but yeah. yeah, like you said, I definitely think, like, when you kind of explore different fields and talk to more variety number of people, you'll understand that, like, they're human, just like the right of all yeah. of us, and they're like introverts, extroverts ambiverts all of them so yeah yeah no totally i i, I trust me i relate more than you know uh, to what <laughs> you're talking about there are plenty of people who i've met just like as you described but i i think it's just important to note that in there's a range and even within just one dis discipline like biology or something like that there mm -hmm. are many different subgenres which will attract different groups of people i guess i'll end this conversation off on like what is next for you like, what do you want to do next? For me, I personally, uh, I'm very interested in technology and mm -hmm. uh, computers and, you know, making, making interesting projects that can apply technology to help other people, whether it's astronauts or my best friend or my brother or a random guy on the street. I, I want to be able to see the impact that I make. So I hope to, in college, explore my interests of engineering and physics and things like that. Uh, I don't. I don't have a better answer. <laughs> I don't. I don't That's know. All good. I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life either. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm sitting here, basically having an existential crisis of like, there's so many different fields in science, but do I want to? Do <laughs> I have no idea. It's fine. I'm doing great. So, well, thank you so much, Josh, for 
doing this podcast with me. I truly ha- enjoyed having you here. Thank you so much, Shree. Uh, I really enjoyed talking about science. <laughs>